to Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Joining me today is an exciting special guest, Anahad O'Connor. Anahad is a reporter who covers consumer health for the New York Times, writing about topics such as nutrition, chronic disease, obesity, and the food industry. He joined the paper in 2003 and has covered everything from business to politics and culture. His focus since 2011 has been the intersection of food and health. Anahad's news stories and investigative articles frequently appear on the front page of the New York Times, and he's been a featured guest on national news programs such as PBS NewsHour, Good Morning America, and NPR's All Things Considered. He's also the author of four books, including the best-selling The 10 Things You Need to Eat. Anahad hails from New York City, as do I, and is a graduate of Yale, as am I. And he currently lives in San Francisco with his wife, who is a women's rights attorney. Anahad, it is a pleasure to have you here with me today. Thank you for carving some time out of your busy schedule to join me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So my my listeners may be wondering, why am I having a New York Times reporter on my show and a man? Because my show is usually featuring women guests. And the answer to that for listeners is several things. One, I'm not gender biased, but I do try to have a large voice for women on the show. And the reason I'm specifically asking Anaha to join me today is he has become a voice for all of us. You know, I, as you know, who listen to me, I tend to take on controversial topics and it's not always the easiest seat to be in. And as I've watched Anaha's journalistic career evolve and particularly some of the pieces he has written in the past few months, I really need to get him on the show. So let me give you an example of just three of the article titles that Anahat has published in the New York Times in the Eat Well section. One is how the government supports your junk food habit. Another is how the sugar industry shifted blame to fat. And most recently, Coke and Pepsi give millions to public health, then lobby against it. First of all, Anahad, kudos to you for taking on these huge topics and this huge industry. And... Tell me why you're doing it. Oh, well, well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to see that people are reading the coverage. You know, so just a little bit of, of background on me. So I, as you said, I hail from New York City, and um, I was raised by two parents who were very health conscious and sort of instilled in me from a young age the importance of good nutrition. They were vegetarians, and so I was a vegetarian, you know, as a child, and, you know, they would uh, teach me about herbs and supplements and and good food and nutrients and you know I was probably the only kid in New York City who was drinking wheatgrass or shots of wheatgrass when I was um, you know back in the 80s and, and enjoying it actually <laughs> so um, so after I left um, after I went to Yale and then graduated I was I uh, got an internship at the Times and you know I, I was very passionate about health and nutrition and decided to make that pretty much the focus of my career as a reporter and I'm to this day very passionate about about health and you know concerned about the obesity epidemic you know a, a crisis really uh, that's affecting vast majority of Americans including children we're even seeing it you know spreading to infants you know newborn babies 
uh, you know, being born unhealthy, um, you know, and this is costing Americans not just their health, but also it's hurting their wallets. I mean, this is a crisis that is, you know, threatening to bankrupt the country one day. And I think a lot of it has to do with our food supply. You know, it's very clear that the diseases that are the chronic diseases that are the leading killers of Americans, you know, heart disease, uh, cancer, type two diabetes, you know, a lot of these diseases um, are, are greatly influenced by what we put in our in our mouths and what we choose not to put in our mouths. And so, you know, it, it's pretty clear we have a broken food system. And I'm just trying to, like a lot of other people, figure out, you know, what's going on, what are the causes of it, you know, what are the factors that are um, affecting our food supply and what Americans are eating and, and what Americans are thinking about what they should be eating. And it's a huge subject. It can be intimidating even for a reporter, but I'm just trying to um, provide our readers with some answers. Anahad, knowing your reading, and you and I met at a scientific advisory board meeting as well, I know that you don't seem to, well, I would say, you don't seem to be a conspiratorialist, and I'm certainly not a conspiratorialist either. But when I read your articles, when I read the most recent one, Coke and Pepsi Give Millions to Public Health and then Lobby Against It, there certainly seems to be a, a political and economic agenda at a fairly high level across the board in industry. How is industry as a whole, and obviously there are various sectors of it, but as a whole, how is industry getting away with this in light of what you so aptly call not just an epidemic, which sounds sort of scientific and abstract, but a crisis that is costing people their health, their jobs, their homes, you know, poverty, a health crisis is one of the biggest things that throws people over across the poverty line. And conditions like diabetes, which sounds so abstract, and we think about insulin, actually cause people their eyesight and people can lose their limbs. So how, how is, if we were to call it that big food, getting away with this kind of economic power? Right. And I, I think you're right. You know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and I don't think there are you know, that there's a handful of people sitting in a corporate boardroom deciding, you know, what Americans should eat and deciding to mislead the public. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that there are billions and billions of dollars at stake. You know, food companies and corporations, food suppliers, you know, so many players in this this industry, politicians as well, you know, there are there's billions and billions of dollars at stake. And so there's a lot of motivation to get you know, to push certain agendas. And, you know, for example, I've been writing a lot about uh, the research uh, behind things like sugar and fat and different foods. And it's very clear from reading the literature, you know, that there is a lot of um, food industry funded research. And, you know, some of it is, you know, certainly uh, beneficial and insightful and helpful. And then it's been very clear that there is, you know, food industry funded research that seems to be biased. You know, there was a big uh, study a couple of years ago by some researchers who wanted to look at this, the big body of literature on the, uh, the relationship between sugary drink intake and obesity. And they said, okay, let's look at all of the studies that have been carried out by independent scientists who are not funded by industry and compare those uh, findings to the findings of all the studies that have been done by 
scientists who are taking industry funding, and they found that I think it was 80 or 90 percent of the independent studies found a very clear relationship between soft drink intake and obesity. And when they looked at the other studies, they found the exact opposite, that 80 or 90 percent of the industry-funded studies found no relationship at all between sugary drink intake and obesity. And so that tells you that, <laughs> you know, there's a clear problem here and that there is, uh, that, that a lot of the literature is, is, is conflicted and, and biased by, you know, food industry money, especially when it comes to the most controversial things that we're consuming, like soft drinks and sugar and, and other foods, you know, even meat and dairy and, and other things like that. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there and Americans are confused about what to eat. And, and part of the reason is because you have so many agendas out there and a lot of the information that Americans are getting is, is, is biased. That affects our dietary guidelines, you know, which determines what, you know, kids are eating in schools, what people are eating in the military, and, you know, what you can buy on the WIC program, on the SNAP program. It affects what millions and millions of Americans eat. And from your latest article, the one talking about Coke and Pepsi financing a lot of different organizations, it was pretty shocking how deeply that money is entrenched even in potential healthcare decisions. I know that about, I guess it was about five years ago now, the American Academy of Family Physicians took a hefty donation from Coke, and a number of us actually sort of uh, gave up our memberships in that organization because of that bias. And of course, the organizations defend it and say, well, we're not influenced. But what I'm reading here in this article, and certainly what I've experienced on the front lines of primary care medicine, is that that's not really the case. And I'm looking, for example, at Save the Children had an about face in its soda tax campaign after accepting $5 million from Pepsi and was seeking money from Coke, uh, organizations that we trust to be unbiased, like the NAACP or any number of public health-oriented organizations may actually be influencing indirectly or directly what's actually happening in the doctor's office by these acceptance of these donations. What's your thought on, on what's going right. on there? Right, exactly. And you know, I should definitely clarify that, you know, a lot of these public health uh, authorities and scientists who take industry money say, you know, we, you know, industry needs to have a seat at the table uh, about the discussion of obesity and the spread of chronic disease. Uh, we shouldn't castigate and vilify them. And it's okay to take their money because we're not going to be biased. It's not going to affect us. But, you know, it's certainly the case that the evidence seems to suggest otherwise um, and this, you know, paper that I wrote about uh, this research showed that, you know, a lot of public health groups, you know, so these the authors of or the researchers basically said, you know, soda taxes are becoming uh, a lot of cities are mulling soda taxes and looking to implement them. And at least two cities so far, Philadelphia and Berkeley, have imp implemented soda taxes. Uh, the country of Mexico has implemented soda taxes. And so far, studies show that when uh, you have soda taxes, that the consumption of sugary drinks go down and the consumption of water and, and bottled water goes up. And for public health authorities, you know, that certainly seems to be a win-win situation because it's very clear, as I was saying earlier from independent studies, that soft drink intake 
is very clearly related to obesity and heart disease and type 2 diabetes. It's certainly not the only factor. There are lot, you know, lots of other factors as well, but public health researchers would say it's the low-hanging fruit because Americans consume so many soft drinks. Um, when I was looking at the numbers, you know, the United States is behind only Argentina as far as you know, soft drink consumption in the world. It has one of the highest intakes of, of soft drink consumption in the world, and it's very clearly related to the obesity epidemic. So if we know that this is the case and soda taxes drive down soft drink consumption, then why don't we have a lot more public health groups coming out and endorsing soda taxes and these measures? And so these researchers looked back over the years at industry funding of public health groups like the, you know, like Save the Children, was, was, which was working on, on childhood obesity, and the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, which is, you know, the large certifying body for America's registered dietitians. And, you know, like you said, the NAACP, the Hispanic Federation, these are groups that are working on obesity, and they're very interested in, in it because obesity rates are disproportionately higher in black and Hispanic communities. And what you know, the evidence showed was that a lot of these groups, when they took money from Coke and Pepsi and the American Beverage Association, they saved the children, decided that they were going to stop calling for soda taxes. You had groups like the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics that basically said we can't endorse soda taxes. You know, others remained noticeably silent about them. And then groups like the Hispanic Federation and the NAACP actually went a step further and, you know, have been actively, uh, publicly actively opposed to soda taxes. And so, you know, the question is, you know, what's, what's going on? It, it would certainly seem to a lot of uh, health authorities that, you know, that taking industry money seems to prevent public health authorities from, from speaking out against soda taxes. And it pr creates a clear conflict of interest. And when I speak to the folks at Coca-Cola and Pepsi, they say, look, we're as concerned as anyone else about the obesity ep epidemic and we're just trying to provide money to these companies to, you know, to support and strengthen uh, public health, um, you know, and help end the obesity crisis. That's why we're giving these groups millions and millions of dollars. Um, but then at the same time, when you look at what they're doing in Washington, they're spending millions of dollars lobbying against uh, public health legislation. And so, you know, that leads a lot of people like Mary Nessel at NYU and Kelly Brownell at Duke, a lot of the leading obesity experts to say that the soda industry wants to have it both ways. They want to, you know, appear that they're doing their corporate social responsibility by supporting health groups, but then at the same time, pouring millions and millions of dollars into fighting public health initiatives. And so that's, I think, creating a lot of distrust. And from what I'm seeing from readers and the feedback I'm getting, you know, people are, are very, seem to be very upset about it. You know, it's interesting. Um, quite a number of the soft drink companies actually own and operate some of the fruit juice companies. So things like orange juice, which would seem to be a healthful alternative and certainly pack a little bit more nutrition than soda, can actually pack a fairly similar sugar content without the carbonation. So it's an interesting um, thing that we've seen in primary care. It's not just taking soda out, which is a, is definitely a low-hanging fruit. And, you know, in our in my practice, I've seen eight and 10-pound weight losses in six and eight weeks in kids who are overweight just taking the soda out. But it's also 
fruit juice is a little bit compromised too. I know you haven't touched that in your articles and I, I totally understand it, but, uh, you know, I just want to kind of mention that to listeners who might be listening to me or reading your articles and think, all right, well, I'm going to give my kids orange juice or, or something health that seems healthful, like chocolate milk, which gets kids to drink milk, which there are issues around milk too, but chocolate milk can pack just as much sugar as, um, I, I believe it was an article by uh, Walter Willett that showed that some years ago. So in, in a way, getting kids to drink water <laughs> which or, or wheatgrass juice, as your parents had you doing, um, and we did at our house too, <laughs> uh, is something we want to be thinking about. <laughs> so you mentioned you get a lot of letters and people are angry. Are you getting pushback from the industry or do you have to wrangle with the New York Times when you're publishing such a hard-hitting article as you've been doing? Well, you know, I'm in talks with the industry all the time and, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, they know that there is a public backlash, you know, against uh, soft drinks that's being, you know, spearheaded by the the public health community. Um, And they, you know, the industry's position is that, you know, we need to focus on all calories, not just calories from soft drinks, because it's not it's not okay to say that people shouldn't drink soft drinks, and then you know, but it's okay for them to eat candy and you know, Big Macs. Uh, you should be focusing on all calories, and you know, their position is that soda taxes are you know illegal and discriminatory because they're focused on you know just one particular food item, but at the same time, you know, they essentially, you know, see the writing on the wall, you know, uh, uh, soda consumption, even though it's still very high in America, it has been declining in recent years. And, you know, the major uh, beverage companies are increasingly diversifying and, you know, carrying and and buying other products. So Coca-Cola, for example, you know, is increasingly diversifying and, and they own a lot of other beverages like, you know, Dasani, bottled water, you know, they're also pushing the diet beverages, you know, um, you know, a lot of big uh, sort of health halo drinks are are being scooped up by the beverage companies. Um, you know, sparkling waters. Uh, you know, vitamin water was a was something that uh, Coca Cola invested in heavily several years back. But as you said, that's something that still contains a lot of sugar. So if you're drinking vitamin water instead of Coca Cola, does that make a big difference? Uh, I think a lot of people would say no, and it may even contain more sugar, and so you may even be worse off. You know, but the beverage companies, they are, I guess, trying to, you know, put the focus on people's consumption of all calories in general, while at the same time diversifying and, you know, um, trying to provide what they say is is lots of other options so that they can sort of staunch the or compensate for the declining consumption of, of sugary drinks or soda in particular. Such an interesting distraction, isn't it? And this health halo, I remember seeing a billboard maybe about a year ago for green Coca-Cola. So it was cane sugar. It was supposed to be like a more natural Coca-Cola. And the label, the iconic red Coca-Cola logo was was in green. This concept of a health halo is very, very insidious. And I think a lot of people do get duped by it. So we do have to be label readers, even when something says natural or organic or anything else. Speaking of label reading, you are, to some extent, what I would call a citizen scientist. You're a journalist, but you've had to educate yourself 
in the areas of health, health policy, health politics, et cetera. How can the listener, how can the American person who wants to eat better, feed their family better, but doesn't necessarily have time to be a scientist or be a journalist, sort through this mess and morass of information and conflicting information that's so confusing, even to people like us who who are trained in in sorting through the literature. Right. I mean, I think, you know, it's it's there's so much conflicting research and studies out there. Uh, you know, there's constantly every day new studies and new claims being made about food products and what you should be eating, what you shouldn't be eating. So many confusing headlines, you know, one day fat is is bad the next day it's it's good one day it's you know it's it's complex carbs are good and then the other day you shouldn't be eating any carbs it's it can be very confusing for people but i think for the average american who doesn't have the time or effort to really dive into the research or to you know make this sort of a, a full-time uh hobby or passion um i mean you really should be focusing on eating real food. I mean, I tell people all the time, you know, try to eat, you know, if you, if your grandparents or your great grandparents were, were healthy and lived to an old age and, um, you know, relatively free of disease, then try to eat what they were eating. You know, it's, it's okay to, to eat real food and try to cook more often. Um, you know, and try to, to listen to your body. Um, because there's, there's just so much conflicting information out there. I mean, I can get deeper into the details if you want, but that's because I'm often asked for a sort of advice about this from, from people in general, and that's sort of what I get them. And, you know, one of the things, obviously, nowadays is, is sugar. You know, if you walk into any grocery store in America, uh, more than 80% of the products are going to have added sugars of some kind. They're, they're sort of hiding everywhere. And, um, you know, so it's very easy to to get a pretty big walloping dose of sugar by the end of the day if you're just, you know, sort of eating blindly. So, you know, read package labels, look and see if there are lots of added sugars, look and see if there are, you know, industrial processed fats that you don't recognize, you know, just sort of be aware of what you're, you're putting into your body. Anha, do you have any health heroes, uh, men or women whose work that you admire, you encourage people to read, learn more about? Yeah. So, I mean, I'd say there are, gosh, a lot of people whose work I appreciate. I mean, I think, you know, there have been sort of courageous scientists going back many decades. Um, people like one of them, which, you know, a guy who most people have probably never heard of is, is someone named Fred Kumaro who's a scientist at the University of, of uh, I believe was, he had a lab at University of Illinois. And he has been studying fats for, and the effects of dietary fat um, on the human body for many decades. And he was one of the first people to recognize that trans fats, you know, these partially hydrogenated oils, um, seem to be playing a role in heart disease and that they were essentially toxic for the body, and he'd have been saying so since the 1940s and 50s. Back then, when people were saying, you know, no, the problem is just saturated fats. People shouldn't be eating saturated fat, and they should be replacing saturated fat with with pretty much anything, whether it's sugar or or trans fats. Um, and as as you pointed out, one of the stories I, I wrote recently was about how the sugar industry actually paid scientists to to shift 
the focus of heart disease prevention on on saturated fat and to give a pass to sugar. But Fred Krumero was out there saying, you know, I'm doing this research and I'm trust me, it's trans fats, you know, are the problem. Um, sugar is a problem. It's not necessarily saturated fat. If you're eating real food, you're okay. And uh, he fought for decades and decades until finally, I think about a decade or so ago, the federal government finally decided to to ban trans fats, and it was a victory for him that had been, you know, literally a half century in the making. So that's one person I admire as far as uh, scientific heroes. I love it. And are there, if there were, let's say. Three foods, or and I'm doing air quotes around foods, so three things that are passed as foods. In, uh, so you've mentioned sugar. You've mentioned trans fats. Um, we've talked about sugar, so I'm going to put uh, soda, so I'm going to put that under the sugar category. Is there one more thing that's passing as food that you would say it'd behoove Americans to completely take out of their diet as a regular ingredient or uh, additive? Right. So I would say the number one thing is definitely trans fats. And those show up on food labels as partially hydrogenated vegetable oils. And, you know, those, those are pretty much a marker for ultra-processed food. And if you see, you know, partially hydrogenated fats, that means that you're eating something that the body doesn't recognize. And the FDA is now – the FDA has recognizes this and has essentially, you know, told food suppliers they have to get this, this, this uh, component out of foods because it's pretty much universally agreed that they're – very bad for you. So I would say partially hydrogenated vegetable oils, number one, is something you should avoid. I would say, you know, added sugars are something that you should not necessarily avoid altogether, but you just need to be conscious because there's, they're everywhere. And there's emerging evidence that they have a pretty unique uh, effect on metabolism. And we have a nation now that is, you know, uh, a majority of Americans are overweight and obese and becoming more and more insulin resistant and type 2 diabetic and it's clear that added sugars you know based on the research you know are playing uh, you know uh, seem to be playing a large role in that and heart disease as well which is leading killer of americans so that's something you need to be very aware of is how much added sugar you're consuming and the who and lots of other health agencies have come out and said you know this is something americans need to pay attention to um, so i would say trans fats and added sugars are number one and number two and then Number three, I would say just a sort of general category of, of fake ingredients. You know, if you're looking at a food label and you're seeing lots of ingredients, you know, that are things that you don't recognize, some of them may be fine, but others may be things that, you know, you probably don't want to be consuming a lot of lots of food dyes and lots of fake sweeteners and lots of, you know, uh, industrially made, you know, fats. That's, you know, if you're eating a food and the, the nutrition label makes it sound like a chemistry experiment, then it's probably not going to be um, the best thing for your body. And what do you consider the most important healthful ingredients in your diet each day? So I always look to eat lots of organic vegetables in particular. Um, and I just try to eat a lot of, you know, real whole foods. You know, I eat, uh, you know, I eat eggs. Um, I eat, you know, turkey and I eat chicken and I eat uh, lots of vegetables. I love uh, organic tomatoes. I love um, arugula and spinach and, and salads. And I, I consume lots and lots of olive oil, balsamic vinegar. I try to essentially take a Mediterranean approach that's, you know, very heavy on nuts, olive oil, 
um, organic vegetables. I eat um, organic wild blueberries every day. Um, I take a few supplements here and there, and, and also I love uh, fish. I eat seafood all the time. I actually, there's a company in Alaska called Vital Choice, yeah. and they actually sell they actually sell wild salmon. They will go out and fish and and take in wild salmon, and then you can actually order wild salmon straight from Alaska, and it arrives uh, freeze dried. And then I, I make all sorts of recipes with um, wild salmon from Vital Choice, and uh, and it's and it's it's great. So lots of seafood, lots of olive oil, lots of nuts, lots of you know spinach, arugula, blueberries. Um, I really love bitter vegetables, and I love just sort of you know trying lots of different vegetables. Brussels sprouts, you know, you put it in front of me, uh, I'll eat it. Anything. I, I love it. I, t- I take uh, a Mediterranean approach to diet too. In fact, my next book is really a, built around how important that is for metabolism and mood and gut health and uh, so much of our, our vitality. And uh, I just got back from Italy and had olive oil and balsamic vinegar shipped to my house that was grown in the region that we were in. I'm so excited to break into that. Anhad, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and for the courage to do what you're doing and do it, doing it so generously and publicly. It's not always easy to be in the hot seat and you're taking an important role in educating all of us. So I'm so appreciative and really honor what you're doing. I hope your parents are as excited and proud of you as, as, <laughs> as they've passed on all this wisdom to you. Uh, it's really wonderful that you're, you're doing this. So thank you. And thank you for making the time to join me today. Yeah. Thank you. Your, your show is, is so insightful and, and I think so helpful to, to a lot of people and, and Americans in general. And so, you know, I'd like to encourage you to keep doing what you're doing and to keep getting the, the message out and the word out. That's what's going to help people, um, change and improve what they're eating and how they're living. And, um, you know, ultimately take control of their health. So, you know, kudos to you and, and please keep it going. Thank you. Well, I hope we have you on again and I'm looking forward to what's coming next. It's always an exciting surprise. I'm always like, ah, oh, he did it again. <laughs> so thank you so much. And we'll talk again. <laughs> thank you. Oh, Anahad, what's the best way people can find it. you aside from so the New York Times? So you can actually find me, right. So um, I usually post all, um, all my stories on Twitter. So my handle is just my full name, Anahad O'Connor. That's A N A. H-A-D O'Connor, O-C-O-N-N-O-R, one word, Anahad O'Connor. So at Anahad O'Connor on Twitter, and you can find me there. Please hit me up. I'm pretty active on Twitter and would love to you know, communicate with people out there. So that's the best place to find me. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.